1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Steven Spielberg presents Back to the Future, a Robert Zemeckis film. Marty leads an ordinary life. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Well, history is going to change. And 1985 is not his year. But Dr. Brown is about to change all that. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? He's sending Marty 30 years back in time. It works! It's a flying saucer from outer space! Now, he's trapped in the past. This has got to be a dream. About to meet... Chocolate. ...his future father. He's a peeping tough. Wow! And he's making an impression on his mother. He's an absolute dream. And he can sleep in my room. Anything you do could have serious repercussions on future events. Now, he's got to make his mother and father fall in love. For crying out loud, I haven't even been born yet. And only Dr. Brown... <laughs> can help him get back to the future. Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Precisely. Michael J. Fox. Whoa, this is heavy. Christopher Lloyd. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future. Hello and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro and I am once again joined by my buddy, my buddy, J. David Weeder. Yes, and what are we here to talk about, Paul? Uh, a little-known independent film called Back to the Future from Maybe 1985. For... 1985? i, I got to put my bias up front here. This this is my favorite movie of all time. So it's Jaws. Uh, I'm not going to say officially. <laughs> I'm going to say officially. It's Jaws. <laughs> but it's Jaws. <laughs> We're going to do this uh, backwards. We're going to say it's Jaws up front and then <laughs> unpack why. Yeah, that's all. I'm going I'm to, uh, you know, before we get to the movie, I'm going to say, I was thinking about it. And now with you as a regular on Listen to the Prophets, with what we've been doing on, you know, that we've did quite a few Back to the Bins episodes. Now you've been, you know, one of the most common guests on here. 
you are rivaling Dr. Bill now as my uh, most common podcast sidekick. Almost a semi-regular co-host? If Michael Bailey were to term it, I'm sure that would be the term you'd get. <laughs> so. I'm good with that. Right, I always enjoy recordings with you and and the other guys from Back to the... Or not Back to the... What show am I on? And the other guys from Listen to the Prophets. Listen to the Prophets. <laughs> Turning into like the guy from The Stepfather. Who am I here? I, I always enjoy the recordings despite you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we uh, started talking about doing another... Is it yours? And David was like, can we finally get to Back to the Future? <laughs> I've been Let's... pestering Paul for a good... Well, since the show began. Because he put out a call for, like, anybody have any specific movies you'd like to share? Back to the Future was number one. So yeah. anytime you've heard me and Paul record, or, or, of course, you would listen to the recording itself, I've poked Paul to do this. And we're Not finally really doing poked. it. <laughs> and, and, I, and I did find it amusing uh, that yesterday I posted on the Is It Yours page that I was watching Back to the Future, and then you followed it up that you were watching it with me. Yep. So we watched it together. From I don't know how many hundred miles apart. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how in sync we were, but we were close. Yes, that was cool, good timing. Anyway, uh, my, now my history with this, and I'm going to go on a little bit here because it's it's I think it's a mild bit of it. I don't know how interesting it is, but it's a little piece of my history. Uh, this was not too long after I graduated college. Yes, I am that old, and I had gotten my first job out of college after a long job search. Uh, paying some you know nominal amount of money. Uh, after working there for just a couple of months, I got a better job. So I put in my notice in that job and was scheduled to start the following Monday on my new job. On the Thursday night, I went to see Back to the Future with one of my buddies. Friday was scheduled to be my last job on my last day on the first job. So we went to the to King's Plaza Mall where they used to have two theaters. That was that was the multiplex at that time, and Back to the Future was playing in one of them. And we went to see it and really enjoyed it. But the more memorable thing of that night was as we left the theater and were walking out, they were giving out wristbands for the next day to buy tickets to see Bruce Springsteen at Giant Stadium uh, because. Born in the USA was his new album at the time. So I was torn between what am I going to do? I got to come in the morning and buy these tickets and then go to work was my conclusion. So, cause I had this wristband that I could not pass on to others. You know, you, you, it's on your wrist and that's that. So I figured, you know, no big deal. I'll go to the mall. I'll let them know I'm going to be a little late for work. I'll get my Springsteen tickets and then I'll go to work as soon as it's done. But as it turns out, they had us wait there all day. And didn't he actually start selling the tickets till like 4 o'clock? So I could have actually gone to work left early and made it in time and it would have been fine. And I ended up getting tickets for three different nights to see him, which was nice. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> my former boss at the original place I worked was none too happy with me and not willing to give me any, uh, any recommendation after that. <laughs> since I I just... You could have sweetened the deal with a Springsteen ticket. I probably should have, but that did not happen. Anyway, that's that's a lot of water under the bridge. Uh, but much like Jurassic Park, this is a movie that I've owned in several formats. Mm -hmm. I've always enjoyed it. I enjoyed the sequels. Uh, I'm not as well versed on it as you are. I did not watch the cartoon 
I've never read any comics. I don't think I don't know if, if there's much in the way of novelizations, but if there is, I've never read any of those. Yep. Each one has a novelization, and then the first one at least has a junior novelization. So I, you know, but I've seen all three of them numerous times, and and enjoy them, and I've seen all three of them in the in the theater. Uh, what's your original history with this? Because you would have been, what, about 10 when this came out? Eight. Eight. God. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, seven. Would have been seven. I was eight when I saw it the following summer. I, It wasn't a good idea to take me to the theater at that time. I was wound up. So I actually did not see this movie in the theater until 2015. I've since made up for it twice. Mm-hmm. But we rented it on video. And that's back when you had to rent the VCR, for those that remember. VCRs were high-dollar purchases. Uh, so you normally you'd rent it from the store, and you'd just plug it into your your TV. And I was just kind of left alone, and I watched it again and again and again. Now, bear in mind, I'm a hyperactive kid. Well, let me, let me assume, back up for a second. You rented the VCR, or you rented the VCR tape? Both. See, I owned a VCR at this point. But the well, tape, we, the tapes were most most of them were pretty expensive. So tapes were about a hundred dollars, but VCRs were four to five hundred. I didn't. I don't think we had a VCR till I was a, I was twelve. I don't think I spent quite that much on the VCR I had back then. But it was. I'm sure it was a couple of hundred dollars. Yeah, it was. It was one of those unnecessary expenses that we didn't, you know, really have money for. It was a creature comfort. So we, yeah, you would rent it. It would come in a big case, like nuclear launch code case. And then you would you would hook it up, and then you would take it back to the store with the tape. Oh wow! Okay, I, n- I never did that. I, I you know I when when VCRs first came out, I'm just gonna say around 1981 or so. Uh, I was in college at the time, and I was working part time. And I actually purchased one before my mother and father did. And I purchased a VCR, and uh, I I think I had my first credit card at the time, and I purchased it with the credit card, and then I paid it off over numerous months that makes sense probably paid like fifty dollars a month to pay it off so i'm trying to think we actually my stepfather prior to this when i was much younger around that same time 80 81 there was a vcr i guess it was beta but at that point there was no big you know home market mostly you could get porn (laughs) Uh, most most of my tapes were you know things that i recorded off of tv at that time yeah, because to buy movies, like you say, most of them were like around the hundred dollars, which is crazy money. Then I remember one of the first ones that came out that was somewhat affordable was The Wrath of Khan, mm. which was thirty four ninety five, if I remember correctly. And then you know every once in a while they'd come out with a an affordable movie, so I did purchase some of those. And then eventually I joined one of those. <laughs> those you know movie clubs where you know twelve movies for a penny, but you have to buy this many over the next five oh like years. Columbia, yeah like Columbia House, House type thing yeah <laughs> and I did one of those and eventually I ended up you know eventually they became cheaper you know like somewhere in the twenty dollars a movie range and then I ended up with a bigger collection just in time for DVDs to come in to vogue and, yeah <laughs> and have the, v- the VCR tapes mean nothing anymore rebuy everything else and then Blu-ray yeah mm-hmm. evolution. Well, but at least the at least the Blu-ray evolution uh, still allows for the step down to DVDs. Yeah, but you know the conversation we were just having 
about renting the VCR. Mm-hmm. Perfectly emblematic of Back to the Future and, and the differences between generations. Yeah, definitely. So uh, we were on topic, if anybody wonders. <laughs> even if we were just in a different even corner. Even un- unintentionally <laughs> so. So, so, you, so you first saw it on a rented VCR version. Yep, and, and watched it, I don't know how many times. I mean, I, I had no attention span. And yet I sat there and watched it again and again and again. And of course, you, as more you watch, the more you pick up. And so this movie just became ingrained in me. It started my fascination with time travel. Maybe an unhealthy obsession, but... Which goes on to this date. Yeah, to this day. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to give you my my other interesting connection to this. It's a slight connection, but uh, the job I left, or the job I went to after I left that job, I had a co-worker that started about a year later, and his father is, or was, because he's now deceased, George DiCenzo, who played Leah Thompson's father in the movie. Oh, that, yeah, and he was, what was the show he was on? Uh, that's a good question. I do not know. Okay. Uh, but I'm going to look, that out. I'm gonna look okay, it up. I'm going to look it up. I didn't ask. <laughs> no, I'm going to look it up. That's, I, I, don't, I never claim to know everything, so it's okay once in a while when you ask a question and I don't know it. Because I knew Lorraine's mom was from, I knew her from Gremlins. George DiCenzo. Wife, Donna DiCenzo. That name is familiar. I don't know if I know her from something. But uh, let's see. Here's his... his Wiki- he has a Wikipedia page. Oh, yeah, he was in the movie The Ninth Configuration. If you've never seen that one, that's that's pretty wild. About Last Night, Walk Like a Man, Pippi Longstockings, Close Encounters, Frisco Kid, Choir Boys, Exorcist 3, which is one that I have to watch to do a, an episode of this eventually on. Uh, he appeared in Hotel. Then it says TV series McLean's Law. Uh, Murder, she wrote. NYPD Blue. Equal, That's where I remember. Equal yeah. Justice. E- Law and Order, Criminal Intent. So he's had a pretty varied career. Passed away in 2010. And, and, and so you were working with his son? Yes. Oh wow! So it's like everything synced up for you. Yeah, it was all it was all Back to the Future all the time, <laughs> every day. Yeah, Michael J. Fox would walk by the window. So when they made this, it, he was forty five years old. Or actually, when it was released, he was forty five years old. He was probably forty four when they made it. Oh my word! It's only a, like three years older than me, and it's significantly younger than me. <laughs> Which just makes me sick. You know, that, that, and I know I keep going off topic here, but that came up after I watched uh, Spider Man Homecoming. And we were talking about, you know, having an Aunt May that's younger. And one of my friends pointed out, he says, he says, you know, you watch these movies and you want to think of yourself, you know, put yourself into the Peter Parker role as you're watching it. And he looks <laughs> at me and he says, but you know your Uncle Ben, right? <laughs> and I was like, that really depresses me, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it just happens to be true. So not not only am I now in the father role, but I'm also older than him. I'm more, I'm more. I guess I'm more uh, Chris, the Christopher Lloyd role at this point. Well, so is Michael J. Fox. So he's about That's the same true. age now as Christopher Lloyd was then. And Michael J. Fox, I believe, is just a little older than I am. He was born in 1961, so he's a year older than me. Anyway, 
So I watched this movie and I thought it was great. And you saw the movie and when you finally were able to sit through the whole thing, you thought it was great. Oh, I sat through the whole thing as soon as, I mean, I was captivated. And then when it was over, rewound the tape and watched it again. I had to have watched it five or six times over the course of two days, Friday to uh, Saturday to Sunday, mm-hmm. which is saying something. I mean, I was eight years old. Again, I was on Ritalin. They called it hyperactivity, but it's ADHD because that sounds much better, I guess. Right. So for me to sit on that couch and, and watch this movie meant it was something special. So now let's talk about the casting a little bit, as we normally would. And we'll go right to the to the big one, Michael J. Fox. And it's a fairly well-known fact that originally Eric Stoltz was cast in the lead in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only was he cast in the lead, but they actually filmed some of the movie. They're about uh, three weeks in. So <laughs> Yeah, which, which is just, I mean, that's so significant. Because that's major expense that they're... Mm-hmm undertaking to then turn around and say this isn't working we need to start from scratch again which is really what they did because i think he was in virtually every scene they had filmed to that point yeah so i don't know if there's any kind of underlying reason that is not public beyond the fact that they just were looking at the dailies and said he isn't working well he's he's very method and where Michael J. Fox would come in and he would eat with the crew and everything, Eric Stoltz would take his meals in his trailer. He would have them call him Marty. And the difference is, I mean, Eric Stoltz, and, and this extends to Christopher Lloyd as well, they come from sitcoms where they're, you're, you have an audience, you have reaction. You mean Marty Michael J. Fox? very much. Hmm? You Michael said J. Fox that, you, and you Christopher said, Lloyd. Yeah, you said Eric Stoltz. And oh, sorry. Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd both come from sitcoms where there's, you know, there's an audience there most of the time. And there's a fluidity to it, and there's a reaction, and, you know, it's almost like stage acting. Stoltz was very much in character, a little too much. No reaction, just method. But when, you know, the, there are there's footage that has been released of him in the role, and it looks to me like he's just very humorless. Yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't look like he's enjoying being Marty McFly. And that will extend to the rest of the cast as well. I mean, if, if your lead actor is, is terrible to be around, because, I mean, he, and there was a scene where he was pushing Thomas F. Wilson, who plays Biff, and got a little too into it. So if you're making everybody pissed off around you, that's going to come off in the, the performances. So Yeah, I, I got to th- think if there's nothing, you know, truly notorious going on in the background that, that wasn't... Uh revealed, which I, I don't have any reason to believe there was. I got to think they were looking at possibly a, a mass exodus where everybody was saying, I can't work with this guy. I refuse to work with him. Beyond just know. the fact that it, it wasn't working. Because, like I said, to undertake that kind of expense, I'm thinking the studio is going to turn around and say, make it work. <laughs> you cast the guy, make it work. Well, luckily they had Spielberg on their side. And so Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis go to Steven Spielberg and say, here, look at the dailies. It's not working. Spielberg says, yeah, it's not working. Take it to the studio head. If you have Spielberg saying this, you've got a little bit of clout. You've got a little bit of movement. Yeah, well, at this point, you know, Spielberg is definitely the golden child. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, he's, he's, or not, you know, it's not just that he has jaws under his belt at this time. He's also got Close Encounters. He's got E.T. Color Purple and Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, he, his, his word as an executive producer is going to carry a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. 
And anyway, the budget of this movie, we'll just jump right to that, according to Wikipedia, is $19 million. Now, even by 1985 standards, that's not blockbuster money. Pretty it's, moderate. It's 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 it exactly is what it is. It's moderate. It's not it's not cheap, but it wasn't crazy expensive either. And if you think about it, most of the cast wasn't well known. Even the people who were well known were known for for TV, mm-hmm. so they weren't going to draw big paychecks for movies. And the special effects aren't really overwhelming. The biggest expense is probably set design. Set design, yeah, because there's a lot that went into that. Um, even even using a backlot, they had two different versions of that backlot that they had to redress. That's yeah. time. That's a lot of time and a lot of crew work. So, but my, they they ended up getting rid of Eric Stoltz. They brought in Michael J. Fox, who was he was definitely the sitcom flavor of the month as far as that you know for that age star. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Family Toys, which had been a, a you know kind of a, a breakaway hit, I, I listened to the book on tape of Michael J. Fox's autobiography, and he talked about how they didn't want to let him make this movie. Mm-mm. So they tried not to show it to him originally, the script, and and they they did not allow him to break his schedule to do it. They weren't willing to accommodate him. So he was doing both at the same time and, you know, playing with near exhaustion. Well, he would film during the day, get in the back of a station wagon with a mattress in it, go to the set and film at night. He was averaging, what, two to three hours at some points? Yeah, that's pretty much what he said. And you don't see that in the performance, to his credit. Not at all. Not at all. He's he's very energetic in the performance. Mm-hmm. And and having just watched it again last night, as we said, uh, you you definitely see that he's 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 got an enthusiasm, and I think he knew this was his big chance. Mm-hmm. And he, well, he wasn't was going to blow it. He was talking about he was filming Teen Wolf before this, and they were filming with Eric Stoltz, and he was actually really jealous because he knew Crispin Glover. And Crispin was kind of explaining, he's like, "Why am I why am I doing Teen Wolf and not that movie?" And sure enough, it came back again. So yeah, he definitely appreciated the role. And there's, there's some moments, I remember even at the time, one of my friends, again, I'm talking in 1985, I remember one of my friends pointing out to me the scene when the Libyan goes to shoot him and his gun is empty. And he says, just look at Michael J. Fox's face at the moment when he realizes that, that like when he thinks he's about to die and when he realizes he's not. His whole body goes slack. He's, he's, like, but he's like, look at the expression, how expressive he is. So that's great acting. And I remember mm-hmm. like it being pointed out even back then. Uh, and there, there are definitely moments where he, you know, he is very expressive, not only in in his facial expressions, but also in the tenor of his voice. I think he did a lot as far as that went. Oh yeah, the movie. I'll say, I'll completely say this on record: movie would not have worked without him. Yeah, I think that's true. Now, uh, I'm trying to remember all my my lore. Uh, I think there was a point when they were talking about somebody else as uh, Doc Brown. They threw out a lot of people. Christopher Walken was considered at one point. Um, that's the big one I remember. But it's because Christopher Lloyd originally turned the movie down. And I'm just looking he, quickly on Wikipedia. They also have John Lithgow as a yeah. person who they considered. Which I don't think either of them would have played the part as well. I think you know Christopher Lloyd made the role his own. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I think the one thing though that always stood out to me from from the first time I saw it to now is they went back thirty years in the future. He looks about five years younger. Yeah, it was. I didn't. I for a long time I did not notice a big difference between eighty five Doc and fifty five Doc. Like specifically looking for it, you do see they have a little bit more in the way of wrinkles on his face in eighty five Doc, but not a lot. No, his hair is virtually the same. Not quite as sticking up as much at the begin at the nineteen fifty five yet, but not rec- not receding any more than that in nineteen eighty five. No. So, but yeah, there and, were and, and also white. What? His hair oh, was hair. white. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> Misunderstood. So it's not like oh, you know, he had darker hair thirty years ago. No, just like a, a whiter blonde. Well, he was he was supposed to be slightly older. I mean, not. He wasn't a young man in eighteen fifty five. He was he was thirty five, closer to forty. Well, I would say so, he was supposed to be at least forty. Yeah, I'm point. trying to remember the exact age off the top of my head, and I don't. But just just as portrayed, I, I like again, I never read any kind of novelization of it or anything. But I would say he was supposed to be at least forty when uh, in 1955, which would put him at you know in his seventies in 1985. It was yeah, he would have been in his forties because he worked for the Manhattan Project, which wasn't in the movie. It was something expanded later. So he would have been. He was a professor in World War II. So yeah, definitely forties, if not a little bit older. And then we also have, uh, and and I'm drawing a blank on his name, the uh, the the security vice principal or whatever he is at the school. Oh, Strickland. I don't Strickland. remember the actor's name for some and, reason. And he's he's you know, I mean, and that one they you know they they openly joke about that. Didn't that guy ever have hair? Yeah, because <laughs> because all he, he had the slightest bit of a wisp of hair in the back in 1955, and he had none of it in 1985. That was it. That was the only change. James Tolkien. And he, he's I, I just I can't look at him and not think slackers, slackers, or, or of course his role in Top Gun. Now, you know, when I see him in Top Gun, I think slackers. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, basically they're the same character. Not that which is not a bad thing at all. Both it's a great character. Now, when I saw it, and again, I you know I wasn't looking at it with a critic's eye, but I had thought there were different actors, a different actor and actress playing the younger and older versions of his parents. That's mm-hmm. how, how good I thought the makeup was at that time. It, and it is, and I they could have easily gone that way, and I'm really glad they didn't. Because I'm glad they went with the prosthetics. There's some more of your budget, by the way. Mm-hmm. But they genuinely made them look older, and not not quite in a satirical way. There, You actually saw, and, and of course, they're two different versions of the older versions, but... They actually look like their age. It Particularly wasn't... Leah Thompson. I thought she, when she was playing the older version, I thought she really looked yeah. <laughs> like that little forlorn face when she realizes she's stuck with her de- with with uh, George McFly for life. And just you know the the fact that she was older, she was you know heavier. Uh, you know, even her, you know her face was fatter. Uh, she just she looked, you know, like a lot of times. Makeup designed to make you look older looks foolish. Mm-hmm. Look at the the uh, deadly years in Star Trek. Not the greatest example of of good mm-hmm. makeup. Oh, I, I and, and I've on Listen to the Prophets. I know we found well, there was one with I think it was Doctor Bashir where he was supposed to be older, and mm-hmm. I thought the makeup was terrible. Yeah. So I mean that 
I think I think more often than that, when they put makeup on to try and people make people look old, they fail. It just looks so obviously like makeup. Mm-hmm. And in this version, both of those actors, I thought legitimately were different actors playing the part, different older actors. So yeah. You know, it succeeded on that level, at least certainly for me. Other people may have had a different experience, but I think it, it definitely succeeded. Oh, absolutely. I, I will wholeheartedly agree. And that's, I mean, that's the primary cast. We, you know, we discussed, we mentioned Thomas Wilson. Did we mention him on the show? Or was that just beforehand when we were discussing him? We were discussing, well, Thomas F. Wilson plays Biff. We were, and we were talking before we got to the show that he actually aged. He's the only one of the cast that actually aged into Biff. Yeah. Like, now he actually looks like he would in that in that movie as older Biff. And now, if I remember right, because as I was saying beforehand when we were speaking, uh, I had heard an interview with him, bef- you know, in between Back to the Future 2 and Back to the Future 3. And if I remember right, he was a stand-up comedian before he started doing this. And he still is, yeah. If you... Get a chance. Google Thomas F. Wilson Back to the Future song. Because it's all the frequently asked questions that are thrown at him. It's like, how is Michael J. Fox? Nice guy. Back to the Future 4. Not happening. And he, he makes it much funnier than I do, I promise. Okay. Yeah, he. I mean, he was great in the role. He, he was absolutely hateable, but funny at the same time. So he, he definitely served his purpose well. Uh we mentioned Claudia Wells in the part of, uh, was it Jennifer? Jennifer uh, Parker. Marty's girlfriend. And I thought she was, you know, she was very, very cute in that movie. And then when they replaced her with Elizabeth Shue, uh, I thought they, they lost a little something. They, they, I didn't feel that, honestly, that Elizabeth Shue and Michael Fox had the same chemistry that Claudia Wells and Michael Fox did. No, but we'll get to that in the sequels. They didn't have the same chance, but Mm -hmm. Claudia Wells herself is actually a replacement. And when Eric Stoltz, Melora Hardin, who she's she's been on The Office, she was in. I'm trying to think of is Zac Efron movie four sixteen again something like that. You would know if I've heard of that movie, but I don't think I've ever seen it. The Office is probably her biggest role, and she was also the lead in the Dirty Dancing TV series. That was a thing, Mm -hmm. but she was replaced when Eric Stoltz went. They felt she was too tall for Michael J. Fox. And he is, Michael J. Fox is 5'4", I think. Yeah. But the neat thing is, just for those that want to seek it out, it's on Amazon. There's actually a comic called Back to Back to the Future. And it has producer Bob Gale and Melora Hardin. Basically, they go back in time by accident. And they make it so Eric Stoltz stayed in Back to the Future. And they come back to a corrupted current day. (laughs) <laughs> Extremely funny if you know the characters and, and the the creators behind the movie. That's, that's actually kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the only other characters to mention are Mark McClure as Dave McFly and Wendy Jo Sperber as Linda McFly. Uh, the biggest thing I have for that is just, from what I understand, everybody who worked with Wendy Jo Sperber loved her. Mm-hmm. And she died young, and it's just sad. Yes, Very. And I've seen her in other roles. She's fan- she's fantastic. I knew her from uh, from uh, Bosom Buddies, mm-hmm. where she played uh, Peter Scolari's unrequited love interest. Yet which, another Tom he, Hanks. He was her love interest. Another Tom Hanks connection. Here's well, he here, was, okay. She, and she was also in Bachelor Party. Yes. So here's the thing. Tom Hanks played Michael J. Fox's Uncle Ned 
on uh, Family Ties. Yep, I remember that. The alcoholic. Tom Hanks also played the guy that got uh, Reverend Jim, Christopher Lloyd's character, into drugs on Taxi. I remember that, too. In fact, I've mentioned that with Bill on, on, on Back to the Bins. Yep. And then, of course, he has Wendy Jo Sperber co-starring in Booze and Buddies. And then, who, whose direction does he win Oscars under? Spielberg. There you go. Spielberg and Zemeckis. It wasn't oh, Spielberg. Yeah, he didn't true. win under Spielberg. Because he won for Philadelphia and then he won for Forrest Gump. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. No, no worries. He's just and in some he... of his best roles with yeah. uh, Spielberg. And Spielberg or Zemeckis, because Castaway was Zemeckis. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. There's a big Tom Hanks connection. It's my conspiracy theory for the week. There you go, people. For somebody who, for somebody who wasn't in the movie, <laughs> <laughs> he had a big influence. So now, the but thing, yeah, that, is... the thing mm-hmm. that jumps out at me about this movie at this point is when I watch it, it tends to very carefully, without being you know, very in a, in a more subtle way, not being ham-handed about it, take away the layers of the thought that oh, thirty years ago things were more simple and people didn't do these things and it was you know it was just a nice quieter life than it is now, and that's one of the things I enjoy about this movie. I feel like that's one of the the subtexts of it is, you know, they find out their mother wasn't the angel that she present pretends to be. And, you know, you, you go back and, and you see that there's bullying going on and, you know, there's attempted rape going on. Yeah. You know, there's, there's all sorts of things. It's, it's not just the, you know, the clean world that nostalgia paints it as. No. And also, I mean, Marty realizes that his parents are people. They're full fledged people. Which, you know, I, I, as adults, we kind of get that eventually. But as a kid, they're your parents. They're the authority figures. Kind of like teachers. They're always at school, right? <laughs> That's all they do. No, they're yeah, when, people when, too. Yeah, when you find out that your, your teachers actually have houses and spouses and children, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of mind-blowing. I mean, that was kind of the core of the movie because Bob Gale found an old yearbook of his father's and saw that his father was the class president. He's like, would we have gotten along? And that was the germ of what became Back to the Future. And it's it's actually a really good theme that's played with very subtly. Like you said, it's it's not heavy-handed. Yeah, and even though, like, you know, my take on it where it's, it's you know, peeling away that veneer of, of clean and, and easygoing, uh, it never presents it as a negative, dark movie, mm-hmm. despite that. It's still always, even with some of the, heavy things that are going on, like I said, at one point we have attempted rape, uh, it never feels like a dark movie. No, but even I, at the, its most intense, which is when Marty's on stage and his hand is disappearing, it still feels, not, I don't want to say light, but you don't feel threatened by the movie. Mm-hmm. It's still, it's still a fun ride. Mm-hmm. And that, that's one of the things that just, you know, always uh makes it that's one of the reasons why it's one of these movies that you can perpetually just watch anytime it's on yeah if it's on tv i'm stopping now i i I always questioned kind of the the scientific validity of the people fading from the picture (laughs) you know uh because because you know my thought is if you just change the past the future is changed end of story it doesn't change slowly no, you're right. It it, that, <laughs> it no. Here's the thing about Back to the Future: physicists, and I, I can't remember if it was Carl Sagan or Stephen Hawking, 
one of them called the, the, the filmmakers and said, thank you for making time travel real. So the concept that they've created, that energy creates a you know wormhole or whatever, is, I wouldn't say plausible, but it's basically how time travel would work if it could work. But 1.21 gigawatts isn't going to do it. But what would happen is, first time you change something, that's simply it. That's the future, and now Marty would be an anomaly. Mm-hmm. But if you do that, there's nothing driving the story now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you have to give him a chance to fix it. Uh, but, you know, I, I just, that's not how I picture the butterfly effect working. No. It, and it's, it's probably not, if time travel were a real thing. And we're not saying it's not. <laughs> no, we're not denying that. We're just not there yet. And I like, I like you know, one of the things they do is they make references to current day and whatever. And because it becomes a period piece of the 1950s, it doesn't feel dated even when it's in the 80s. And I think that's one of the key, you know, key points to this movie. Because if it felt dated in the 80s, I think I don't know if it would have aged as well that now, you know, 30 years later, 30, 33 years later, uh, that we could still watch it and have it feel fresh. Yeah. And that that's that's a tough act, you know, that's a tough ball to juggle. Uh, but one of, one of my favorite moments is, you know, how they play with, uh, you know, the fact that Ronald Reagan is president <laughs> in 1985. So that when, you know, he comes back in time, one of the first things we see is he goes, you know, he passes a movie theater and it's a Ronald Reagan movie playing. Yeah. And then, Queen of Montana. And then uh, Doc Brown says, oh, if you're from the future, who's the president? Oh, it's Ronald Reagan. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, yeah, the police president. <laughs> Jerry Lewis? Yeah, exactly. And apparently Reagan himself was watching the movie and had them play it back and laughed at that scene, thankfully. So that's one of the things I enjoy. And, and you know, the the nostalgia is done well. And, you know, it's, it's, like I said, you get back into the 50s and it feels like a period piece, but it's not laid on too thick. We don't have a soundtrack of, you know, 15 1950s songs. You know, no, there's only Mr. Sandman, uh, and I don't know what the song is that they're all dancing to when they come into the uh, when they come into the soda shop at one point. I think it's a Dwayne Eddy song. I'm not 100 percent on that. I know David, the ballad of Davy Crockett is playing. Mm-hmm. Johnny Be Good, and I mean, when I looked at the soundtrack listing, there's only a handful at best. Most of it's score by Alan Silvestri, which I love the score by the way. Oh, it's a beautiful score. And it works through all the way throughout the franchise, just to kind of speak ahead, that it's adapted to what they're working with. It still feels epic, but it feels of a piece for with the time they're going to and from. And I'm gonna I'm gonna jump from that only because you just mentioned it in passing. Uh, possibly the only negative I have in the movie is when they play Johnny B. Good, they really needed to get a singer who sounded more like he could be Michael J. Fox singing. See, I, I for a long time thought it was Michael J. Fox. Oh no, not, I, I didn't even think it was close. I don't think it's. I don't think no, it I sounds don't like anymore, that. But... Like that sound could ever come out of him. And you could have had a better singer who had a voice more similar to his. Well, one of the thing that that the Johnny B. Good thing does bother me a little, because that implies that Chuck Berry did not invent that song, that it was a white guy, mm-hmm. which I completely went over my head until until I was in the theater watching it in 2015 I'm like hey wait a minute but chuck berry had to sign off on that so he was well aware so i'm gonna leave that there 
Did did we talk much about uh about just Christopher Lloyd and how he kind of took this role and went with it? Because I, I guess this is after the search for Spock. Or am I'm I getting them back? Search for Spock was was it eighty three? I think it was 83 or 84, and this is 85, so I'm pretty yeah. sure that was before. And I, I, you know, he was, I, I was going to say he was trying to make his way into the into movies, but he had already been in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was where I first became aware of him. Um, but he hadn't had major significant roles that I'm aware of until this, until, you know, those two movies. Uh I think he was. Was he in? Uh, wasn't Wasn't he in the the Frisco Kid? I'm trying. That I'm not. Oh sure. no no! It was not Frisco Kid. It was Going South. I'm getting the two mixed up. With Jack Nicholson, he was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack Nicholson, and he was in Going South with Jack Nicholson. And then he kind of became you know big in Taxi. Uh, he he wasn't in the original cast. I think he came along in season two. As Jim Ignatowski. Reverend Jim. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then, yeah, he did, I'm just looking, Star Trek Three was in 1984. Mm-hmm. Adventures of bon- Bungalow, Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> National Lampoon's Joy of Sex. I didn't even know that one. No, I knew Buckaroo Banzai. And then he's, you know, he's got, he's got a fairly long filmography, but, you know, a lot of stuff is not, you know, not big. No, this is, I mean, Doc Brown's easily his most iconic role. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's unfortunately going to live in the shadow of that for the rest of his acting career. Even though he's got a lot of nuance and he can do a lot, people are going to want the Doc Brown. They are, but he he did have his moments after this. It's not like he just faded out to nothing. I mean, you think of him as Judge Doom and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's a big one. When was Clue? Clue is 1985 after this. Okay. Because he was excellent in that, but he, I can't imagine anybody else playing this role. I really can't. No, like, and I think John Lithgow is a fine actor. Don't get me wrong. But but I don't see him bringing the humor to the role that, that Christopher Lloyd did. Just the um, manic, he was kind of like Adam West. You know, Adam West as Batman, where he would have these calm moments that go suddenly erratic. Well, I just, I just picture him waiting for Marty and going, damn. 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 Damn, damn. 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 <laughs> He's got all the watches yeah. on. And the way the soundtrack is behind him during that, too, just kind of adds to it. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I, I really feel like he, he just gave the role so much. Well, and, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, as, as the character was fleshed out through, you know, the various appearances, uh, he becomes a man who's obsessed with science. Mm-hmm. But... In the beginning of this movie, I think they tell you he's a man obsessed with time. Not so much science as time. Because, you know, he's got the, the house with all the clocks in it. Oh, we haven't even talked about that opening. The opening scene with all the clocks. Just how mm-hmm. much you learn about Doc. But yeah, he's obsessed with time. because Well, that's what he's working on. Time travel. Yeah, and everything's 25 minutes slow because of that. Which is just a, <laughs> kind of a cool thing. Uh I don't know who has a speaker as large as, or an amp, as large as the one that that Marty put his guitar into uh, that he nearly killed himself with. And uh, you know, I don't think this movie could be made today. 
because you have this friendship between this older man and this this teenager. Nobody thought anything about that in 1985. That I I, I never heard anything about it. I know it didn't even occur to me until I was an adult. I had it on DVD. Hey, that could be misconstrued. See, I don't think anybody would misconstrue the relationship because I think they show you enough of the relationship that you could be comfortable with it. But I would think they'd have to put something in there with people on the outside looked at them as it being strange. And they do. They had they had uh, Principal Skin uh, Skinnerd. Whoa! I'm jumping to the, to the Simpsons. <laughs> Homer. Uh. <laughs> um, I can't put out his name. Strickland. Oh my gosh. Is so he they the have him calling it out. Yeah, just, he's, okay. I, I don't know he's why, a vice I, principal because in the novelization, there's a completely different opening that involves him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he yeah he tells him to stay away from that crazy old man, whatever. Yeah. Give you a nickel's worth of free advice. You're a slacker, McFly. <laughs> just like your father. And see, where the, where the mother becomes very three-dimensional and seemingly realistic to me in how she's portrayed. The father, as portrayed by Crispin Glover, almost seems to be just slightly too much of a caricature. Oh, yeah. Crispin Glover played that well over the top, but I don't want to say it works, but they offset each other really well. It works for the purposes of the movie, but it doesn't work to make you believe he's a real person. If yes. that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. You would, If you saw that guy in the street, you would think he's putting you on. Yeah. The and then, <laughs> then it turned out he, he was... Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> uh, but it, you know, it turns out he was, he was a little crazy to begin with. Because was it David Letterman that he was on? Uh, around the time that this was out. And he starts telling, I'm strong, I'm strong. You know, it's like, he starts like kicking things and stuff. He's Chris McGlover is is different. Yeah, there's a reason he wasn't brought back for the sequels. Mostly because he's Chris McGlover. Yeah, it's, I think that's exactly right. I'm tr- yeah, I'm trying to be nice because I think he's put in some some good performances in movies since then, and of course in this one. But he's definitely an odd one because Michael J. Fox was telling a story how he would just do these weird things. They're having the conversation about uh, setting up the you know the conflict with the dance. And he's, he's and Chris McLeaver's moving this broom, and he's like, "What is that?" He's like, "It's a sweep of indignation." <laughs> what does that mean? What? <laughs> yeah, he's just a stranger. And then his, you know, the connection that I have to that is that his dad played one of the uh, was it Mister Wint or Mister Kid? I don't remember. In uh, Diamonds Are Forever. That was oh, I didn't know it was his dad. And if you watch it, like if you watch that now, you'll see him, and you'll be like, "Oh yeah, that's Chris McLeaver's dad." Like yeah. <laughs> you could see it. Once once you know it, you could see it. Uh, and he, at least when he played the more the teenage George, he seemed a little bit more plausible. Yeah, I think I think he was a little too over the top as, you know, as adult uh, George. And he's like, well, he's my boss. I know you're right. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Just I, not I, good I, at confrontation. I think he could he could have just dialed it back just a little bit. Luckily, those scenes are short, though. And I, th- I think the purpose as an actor that he was going with there was to give you the contrast between that and at the end of the movie when all of a sudden he now he's got his confidence and everything. Now, Biff, you know that whole don't, part. Don't con me. 
Yeah, there there is a, a striking contrast, and I don't I don't know how much of that was input from the director to to play it that large. Probably not as much because I don't in Zemeckis's films I've not seen a track record of being over the top. Who from Roger Rabbit being a notable exception because it should be over the top. Uh, what was the one with Bruce Willis and Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn? That one was very over the top. Death Becomes Her. That's but again, that's that's satire. Yes. Oh, it was intentionally over the top, and I think yeah. rightful. I think it was it was supposed to be. You know, it needed to be over the top. But certainly, he he wasn't looking for realistic performances there. No. Uh, so now I'm gonna I'm gonna let you run wild a little bit, and you know I talked about how the themes about kind of showing the 50s wasn't as clean and easy as uh, as, as it was maybe presented elsewhere. Uh, I'm curious if there are any other themes in this, because I know you've done multiple podcasts on the uh, on the movie. Uh, any other themes that you think are worth talking about at this point? I would say one of the things that's kept kept Back to the Future, the first one, I mean, the, the trilogy is a completely different matter. Only the, with this first movie, the thing that's kept it as timeless as it is, is, is the symmetry of the script. Everything is presented in an order and resolved in the reverse order. Mm-hmm. And there's very few dangling plot threads. The Libyans being a big exception. And it's just you walk out satisfied because everything that's been presented to you has been resolved. It also has, if not the best, then one of the best climaxes of all time. The, the DeLorean rushing towards the, the cable mm-hmm. in this one in a million shot. And everything's going wrong. I don't. I don't care how many times I've watched this movie. I am white knuckling through that whole thing. And dang, it's just it's so satisfying because you laugh, you feel some emotion. And the weird thing is, one of my favorite scenes isn't one of those. One of those big ones. It's Marty sitting in the diner writing his letter to Doc. And I was thinking about that as we were, as I was watching it. That why does that stand out? And I realize it's probably the only time you get to catch your breath in this movie. There's no wasted space. Mm. It's tightly edited, tightly written. You're moving from scene to scene as need be. And the, the reason is they used a, a basically an index card. Like, we want Marty to invent skateboarding. He has to skateboard at the beginning of the movie. And it completely works. Hence the symmetry. Yeah, that's true. That, that's all, all very true. And uh, let's, let's talk about the letter to the doc. Because now, if we look at time travel as being, or if we look at time as being something that exists, future, past, present, uh, and and don't look at it in a, at it in a linear fashion, because this movie is saying it all exists at the same time, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I'm confusing myself by even the way I'm describing it. Uh, but then, by writing that letter and having Doc Brown read it and act upon it which he ultimately does he's then changing the future yes oh he's of course empowering george the the future he goes to is not the future he left so there when he goes back and they did deal with this in in the idw comic a little these aren't the parents he knew this isn't the house or it's the same house but the same framework he has created an alternate reality yeah, the parents are different. The brother and sister are different. The uh, success level of the family is different. So, and now that's going to ripple out. You know that that changes on you know a lot of things on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and then he's taking blower. it a step further by saving Doc Brown, which is now changing it even more. The Marty at the uh, towards the end as he's rushing to to try to save Doc, he gets back early. And when he comes to the Lone Pine Mall, he watches the DeLorean drive off. That's not the same Marty. There are two different Martys from two different timelines. Believe me, I, this is the nerdy stuff I sit down mm-hmm. and think about all the time. Well, because this, but. <laughs> See, no, I'm, 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 I'm going to disagree to the extent that you're going to have to explain it to me in a way that I'm going to say it's true. Mm-hmm. Because when he comes back home and sees his changed parents, it's he's not a Marty who grew up with them. Correct. So, therefore, he hasn't changed. Or you're he saying hasn't. The, he hasn't. The Marty he watches leave. Would would be the the Marty that grew up with those parents, that version of George and the Rain, and and then that creates the time paradox that that doesn't yep. work because if he's the Marty who grew up with those parents, then he's not taking the same actions back in 1955. Uh, yes, think about that. There's there's something right there that IDW could pick up and run with if they wanted to do a miniseries. In fact, I've got a pitch for one. I think this is becoming part of our regular routine when you appeal. Yeah. You, you you always have something to pitch. Well, that's an idea person. The idea is that Doc, in the comic, they, they end up finding a backup DeLorean. Long story short. Doc, the, Marty starts seeing these these moments happen where George changes from, you know, simple George, or, or not simple, but callow George back to, ca- you know, cowardly George. Little blips. Doc realizes that basically the original journeys in the trilogy have created soft spots in time like a honeycomb and it's starting to collapse. The new DeLorean has filters that can stop that. So they have to go back to all of those jump points and basically install the filters to repair the time frame. So they're jumping back to 1955 originally. They're jumping back to the Back to the Future 2 1955. They're going through the trilogy and trying to avoid themselves. Wackiness ensues. There you go. It's an elevator pitch. I think that's not the pitch... For a storyline, that's a pitch for an entire series. It's basically, uh, it's basically the Back to the Future crossed with Exiles. Yeah, it, I think it would be a five well, or six issue miniseries. It's Back <laughs> to the Future and Quantum <laughs> Leap. But yeah, if IDW wants to, they can call me. They haven't yet, by the way. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it's possible to have a time travel story that doesn't make my head hurt but it's in a good way because <laughs> yeah. I, I enjoy the the different conflicts it creates well, but you like you said it, 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 that's a prime example <laughs> mm-hmm. just the conflicts that that person is sitting basically they switch places with Sam is what's revealed so they spent all this time sitting in a, a simulator of some kind and they don't come back and remember any of this yeah, well, yeah, that's we, right. We, we, could, we, yeah, we could go on and yeah, on we about could. quantum leap. Well, we, I mean, there's probably somewhere out there a quantum leap podcast where they go through all the ramifications of what's going on in that. And uh, it would be worth listening to if I had the time to do that. But as it is, I don't have anywhere enough time to do to start adding new podcasts to my listening or recording schedule. Uh, but yeah, the time travel conflicts and paradoxes 
just you know it's you're always going to add it in there you're always going to have some sort of paradox because that's the nature of time travel stories mm-hmm. well i mapped out the various time frames i had free time apparently at one point so in one of my notebooks i actually have where they keep creating different time frames by the third movie i mean they've changed everything from eight from 1885 up to the the present at 1985 future still to be written so yeah, the, this the the trilogy as a whole, yeah, it will it'll burn you up if you take too much time. Mm-hmm. But it could, it could be a good series for a while. So if, if uh, IDW decides to call you, uh, I'll be reading. Perfect. So any, well, any, to, to turn ahead. that into a compliment for the movie, though, it doesn't it doesn't eat up a lot of time with the whole paradox <clears throat> stuff. That's not that's not what they want you to focus on. It's a it's a means to a story. Well, and they, I mean, as far as time travel goes, they they don't want you to be paying attention to the paradox so much as the butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. That's really the focus of time travel in this movie, and and they use the image fading from the photograph to visualize that. And while, like I said, from a literal point of view, that probably doesn't make sense. From a storytelling point of view, I think it's very effective. Mm-hmm. And what I liked about that, and I, I, I don't know why, but I focused on it more when I rewatched it last night, is the when he first pulls out the photo to show Doc Brown, Doc Brown comments about how you know it's just a bad, you know, photo, uh, I don't photo know paper. It, yeah, you cut you, off your no, brother's fo- hair. Photoshop, <laughs> like he, he says, you know, photo manipulation or whatever he calls it. Uh, yeah, that they cut off his hair, and. When I first watched it, like that didn't even register with me. Mm-mm. And well, it wasn't. Like it wasn't until son being named Sherman. Yes, <laughs> Sherman and Peabody. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But it, it wasn't. It wasn't until his entire head is gone that I really started to take notice of. Hey, what's going on there? Yep. So, so like I said, it, do, it does give you a visualization of what's going on and how it's, I guess, slowly taking effect, which doesn't necessarily make sense from a, uh, at least from my point of view, maybe for other people it would, uh, but it definitely gives you the framework of your story and it gives you a ticking clock on how long he has to get this accomplished. Yeah, which you would think would make for a good video game, but NES made a Back to the Future game that or it was LJN for NES made a game that was absolutely atrocious. Just, if you see it, I don't care how adamant a collector you are, it's it's worth avoiding. Mm. Now, I don't want to talk about the sequels at all, because I think we'll do that down the line. Yeah. But I would like to talk about the, uh, the Back to the Future ride at Universal. Oh, I never got to ride it. It's, 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 I've seen it, the video of it, and it's phenomenal. It was, it was a great ride, and I can't understand why they got rid of it. It is now uh, the Men in Black ride, which is still fun. Oh, it's a Simpsons ride. It's the Simpsons? I thought yeah. I turned into the Men in Black. Men in Black was okay. different. It was the Simpsons ride because I actually had to do a visual. This is how much time I spend on this. I did a visual um, side-by-side of the Simpsons ride. It's, it's the Science Institute. Okay. Yeah, I guess it is. And I've done both rides, and the Simpsons ride is good, too. I enjoy that as well. But I, I, like, I, I can never understand why you couldn't have both. Uh, there's really no re- reason to get rid of the Back to the Future ride. That used to be the primary attraction to Universal Studios. 
it saved Universal Studios. And I don't say that in hyperbole. When Universal Studios opened, everything was broken. Jaws never worked. Jaws never um, worked. I did the Jaws ride once, and it was horrible. Yeah, uh, they re- even they had to revamp it. Kong, or was it Confrontation? Was well, Confrontation was no Confrontation was always good. The when when I went to to Universal Studios in Florida back in nineteen ninety one. Okay, I this is right was, at the right time. Yeah. Uh, the the attractions were Back to the Future, Confrontation, and E.T. Yeah. Those were the three must-ride rides, and those were the ones that had the long lines. And apparently, E.T. will be there as long as there's Universal Studios. Apparently, because it's the only one that's still there. And it's it's something where, uh, where Steven Spielberg has some sort of you know contract that, that yeah. they're, not, they're not allowed to get rid of it. And he's not going to let them get rid of it. And it's a great ride anyway, so I, I don't really see the need to get rid of it. To be honest with you, I never saw the need to get rid of any of the three of those. Even Confrontation, which is, you know, kind of, you know, not not so not not so uh, well done by today's standards. You know, kind of kind of simplistic in in the way the the Kong is is the animatronic Kong is, but still, it was a fun ride, and, and I bemoan its loss uh that was eventually replaced i believe with the mummy ride which is also kind of cool but not the same well back to the future though i mean that ride brought people back in and it's defined that park in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. look at the amazing adventures of spider-man took that technology um almost most of your dark rides now the harry potter ones they all build off of what back to the future the ride did yeah and there was, there was, like I said, there was nothing wrong with that ride. It was fun. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, it's disappointing. And I guess that came from more from Back to the Future 2. Mm-hmm. You know, the con- conceptually, the story behind the ride. Uh, but that was, like I said, I just, in the times I've been to Universal Studios in the last five years or so, I've missed it. And I wish it was back there. Well, going to the Universal Studios, I've been twice. And I, I didn't know where the DeLorean was, but I found it by accident the first time. Which, if anybody's looking, it's Universal Flor- Universal Studios Florida. It's over by the Simpsons ride. Mm-hmm. Next to the train. But there was something really... I don't know what the word is. It's very moving, very emotional for me to finally stand in front of that. And then you think about it that they're just letting this sit out in the, in the, in the elements. And you're like, you don't care about this anymore. Well, and they also have several of them. There's some some of them will go on tours. I know they had it. Uh, I think they had it at Eternal Con when we were there. They had one of that the Lorians. It was eight. Yeah, there there were only a few that were actually screen used though, and that the one at Universal was one of them. Mm-hmm. It's just it's, it's if you're at Universal, it's totally it's must visit for me. Well, yeah. But yeah, we got we got way off on that. But the, yeah, the ride, it's it's in one of the extras on the Blu-ray set, and I regret never getting to ride it. Yeah, well, I I did ride it on probably three or four occasions total, and uh, yeah, I, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and sugarcoat it for you. You 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 missed out because you didn't get yeah. to do it. You would have loved it. Yes, I would have. To my eternal bitterness. So what what else do we have to hit on here? Um, I have it, one one gripe before we before we wrap up. Go ahead, give me the gripe. 
okay, most people say that Marty doesn't grow as a character. George and the Rain benefit, um, Doc Brown benefits. Let me be clear, that's not entirely true. This may be a weakness of the communication, but coming back, do you think Marty's going to play his music as loud as he did at the beginning? Seeing the reaction of that of the people in 55 to his grandstanding? No. Is he going to look at his parents or, or anybody else the same way? Absolutely not. It, will he approach the future the same way? No. Marty is, it may not be a drastic change, but he definitely appreciates things more. He's going to treat his parents better, and he's going to be less fearful of trying new things because once you've done, pulled off the impossible to get back to you know the future, there's nothing that's going to stop you. So really, if you take the lesson, it's actually literally said, if you apply yourself, you can accomplish anything. Put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. I'm sorry, I misquoted. And that's, that's Marty's lesson. And I, I think the, the biggest part of that is that he learns that his parents aren't this either idealized or negatively mm-hmm. <laughs> realized uh, caricature. That, that, that they are real people with real positive and negative character traits. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's something, I think that's part of the growing up process for most people. You know, you, you don't realize that your parents are real people. <laughs> when you were a little kid, uh, I don't think I that, really got in, got a clear idea of that until I was in my twenties. I remember I have this distinct memory as a as a fairly young kid, probably like five six years old, of being with my father and doing something where like I, I put my hand on his arm and I like twisted it or something. And I, like I said, I was a little kid, and I just remember my dad pulling his arm away and saying, "Ow!" Like you know, because I heard him. And I just like, like a light switch went off, and I said, I didn't know I was capable of hurting him. Yeah, you thought he was invulnerable. Yeah, and that's that. Like that was when, at whatever age I was then, that's when I realized my father was really a person. <laughs> and that may be a stupid thought, but it is there. I think you do have that as a kid. You know, you you not necessarily ideal, not necessarily idealize them, but you think. They just are what they are, and that's it. Well, they're the ones that are your protector as a kid. You know, they're the ones when you have a bad dream that tells you they they tell you you're okay, it's okay, and you believe them. And so they're they're more than people to you. They're I'm, I don't know what the best word to put it in. They're they're yeah they're more than people. They're not quite human. They're above that. And, and then and when you, when you realize that they're not, it's it's a little bit different. But it's not necessarily. Uh, like in in Marty's case, you know, sadly for him, uh, unlike me, I don't think he had the thought that his parents were perfect. I think, in fact, it was just the you know his mother to some extent. You know, he thought his mother was like a saint that she never did anything wrong. But his father, you know, I think he pitied his father. Yeah, he uh, he looked at them as I mean, his father is somebody who gave up, and, and, and that it, was the lesson that was paid off to to David and Linda. And you yeah. see the echo effect when he decides, no, I'm going to you know, get some confidence and push through. Now he's a professor. He's a novelist. The kids follow suit on that as well. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I think you know, that there's, there's something there that hits home. And it, again, it's not the same because I didn't have the same, you know, oh, my father's pathetic thought. In fact, I, you know, my father was a superhero in my mind. And I think a lot of us have that, and a lot of us mm-hmm. probably have the other way around also. But I think either way that you look at it, 
you tend to just put these character traits on them and not realize that they're regular people with regular feelings until you get older and realize that. And I think that's the lesson. And I'm getting this around to this in a long, convoluted way here, but I think that's the lesson Marty really learns here mm-hmm. is that his parents are, are real people, and I think they're real people who he comes to like on a genuine level. Even, even George is... is Meat, meat-headed as he is, I think you know Marty. Marty genuinely likes him by the end of the movie. Well, he learns more. He learns that his father wrote stories, mm-hmm. and he had no idea. So, and that's to me that's that's his character growth. Yeah, more than anything else. And yeah, to say he doesn't have any, I think that's not looking at it deeply enough. Yeah. Thank you. But I think that's all the important points I have. Okay. So I, I will not rant too much. I told you I'm going to be the, the soul of restraint. <laughs> well, I think it's you know it's just worth mentioning again, Al, Alan Silvestri's score I just think is phenomenal. Uh, it plays so well throughout the whole course of the movie, mm-hmm. you know, going, going back and forth into different tempos depending on what's happening. Uh, from you know the, the you know the actual theme, you know, the, 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 that part is just great. And that's that's one of the most memorable things. But even like the, I don't even know what, what you'd call it, the kind of the sound uh, as as things would go on and you, you almost had that, that, it almost sounded like a light switch going on uh, to some of the music. And it was just so well done. And it just captured the mood of the movie and kept it upbeat. And I think it's one of the reasons why even with dark themes in the movie, it never felt that dark. Yeah, and there's a lot of subtlety. You have the chimes, the the jingle, as they call that's, it. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, yeah. the chimes. Every now and then, when something changes, you actually hear that. And it's just such a subtle, it's kind of, it's as subtle as Jaws. I mean, all you've got is dun 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 And yet, it is effective. Yeah, so that, that's something I think that's definitely worth mentioning because mm-hmm. I think that the score in this is just one of the best ones. I mean, there's there's a lot of really, really good scores out there, but this goes on the list is my point. Uh, this one I listen to frequently, um, as along with like Wrath of Khan, two of the really good scores that have the right subtlety mm-hmm. that fit their movie like a glove. And the other thing is just, you know, we mentioned that uh, this was a mild hit. I mentioned that it was a $19 million uh, budget, and the box office is slightly higher than that. Do you know what it is? I don't want to... I am... It was $379 million, I think. 389 very close. Okay. <laughs> so, so for a $19 million budget, I'd say that's a pretty good profit margin. Well, it was number one, and I want to say it was like 13 weeks, with one exception when Commando was number one. That it skipped one week and then it was number one the following week. So it, it dominated this summer and the year. Yeah. So this, this was a, and, and uh, you know, again, you know, we said it right from the start. This is Jaws. This is a great yeah. movie. This is it's Jaws. Yeah. We can't really hide that. I'm not going to try and pretend that it's anything, anything less. It's, it's just a great movie. It's been, it's routinely on lists when they, when they list the top movies of all time, it's routinely on them. And there's a reason for it. Yeah. It's one. It's oh, it's as close as you're ever going to get to a perfect script. There's no such thing as a perfect script, but this one comes really close. So I'm not going to even ask the question because we know the answer yeah. already. <laughs> we, yeah, we know. <laughs> <clears throat> and I guess that'll do it for Back to the Future. 
So Dave will be back, whether it's for The Order of the Phoenix or Back to the Future 2 or some other movie. I guess time will tell. I tend to come back. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me again. And you have your new project going, so you might as well just throw that out there before we call it a day. Uh, You can find me at Daredevil Podcast. Again, it's a new version of the Daredevil Podcast called Daredevil Legends. Uh, now I can actually freely say I'm also on Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast with with Andrew Leyland, Doctor Bill, and some other guy, and some uh, mope. <laughs> and uh, the the Dave Cave Batman podcast is just down the feed or just down the dial here on Two True Freaks. Right. That's where I talk about Batman. Oh, well, you almost had that hidden in the title. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Dave, and thank you everybody for listen for listening, and we'll see you next time. Don't say a word. Doc, I don't want to know your name. I don't want to know anything about you. Listen, Doc. Quiet. Doc, don't tell me anything. Doc, quiet. Quiet. I'm going to read your thoughts. Let's see now. You come here from a great distance? Yeah, exactly. Don't tell me. Uh, You want me to buy a subscription to the Saturday Evening Post? No. Not a word. Not a word. Not a word now. Quiet. Uh, donations. You want me to make a donation to the Coast Guard Youth Auxiliary? Doc, I'm from the future. I came here in a time machine that you invented. Now, I need your help to get back to the year 1985. Do you know what this means? It means that this damn thing doesn't work at all. You gotta help me. You were the only one who knows how your time machine works. Time machine? I haven't invented any time machine. Okay, all right. I'll prove it to you. Look at my driver's license. Expires 1987. Look at my birthday, for crying out loud. I haven't even been born yet. And look at this picture. My brother, my sister, and me. Look at her sweatshirt, Doc. Class of 1984. Pretty mediocre photographic fakery. They cut off your brother's hair. I'm telling the truth, Doc. You gotta believe me. Then tell me, future boy. (laughs) Who's president of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? The actor? (laughs) Then who's vice president? Jerry Lewis? I suppose Jane Wyman is a first lady. Whoa, wait, Doc. And Jack Benny is secretary of the treasury. Oh. Doc, you gotta listen to me. I got enough practical jokes for one evening. Good night, future boy. No, wait, Doc. Doc, the, the, the bruise, the bruise in your head. I know how that happened. You told me the whole story. You were standing on your toilet and you were hanging a clock and you fell and you hit your head on the sink. And that's when you came up with the idea for the flux capacitor, which is what makes time travel possible. Apparently, one. I'm not talking to Tina. (laughs) It's not Doctor Bill either. No. 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 It's Dave. Hi. (laughs) He says hi and shut up. I didn't say that. (laughs) Well, he didn't say shut up, but he meant it.